And as we get started, I want to remind you that from Exodus 24 uh, through 31, we've been looking at the tabernacle, uh, the priests, their garments, uh, the implements inside of the tabernacle. And to this point, uh, we don't really know how these things are going to be built. We just know the plans, and we know God has purposes for all these pieces. So as we come down this next portion of Scripture in chapter 31, we're introduced to two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. Now, in verse 1 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And so uh, it says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels of setting, excuse me, for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you, Moses. And so Bezalel is the first one mentioned here, and his name actually means in the shadow of, or in the protection of God. And the idea in the little literal translation is like the the layers of an onion. Uh, Bezalel is inside the onion. And so uh, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that he is a servant of God under the protection of God, enabled by God. So I believe that Bezalel was actually a naturally gifted craftsman, but it says here that God filled him with the Spirit of God in order to build these implements in the tabernacle. So if you've been with me from chapter 24 all the way through 31, or even a piece of it, you know that the implements that are going to be in the temple all point to Jesus. They're all things that will be uh, fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, but they also are very intricately made pieces of art. And so many times people uh, think, you know, what can I do to serve God? And they're thinking, like, can I, I, I can't teach the Bible, or, you know, I, I don't play an instrument. I'm, I'm not called to ministry. And yet what we find here is that in order for Bezalel to fulfill the calling that God had placed upon his life, he needed a filling of the Holy Spirit to do that. Because building a, a bronze laver or building a, an oil lamp or building these panels of finely woven linen for the sides of the tabernacle or the ropes or the silver basins, or any of the pieces that go along in the worship of God in the Israelite nation, in order to make them, it's one thing to be able to read a blueprint. I spent a good portion of my job as an engineer for over 12 years reading blueprints, reading plans. But you know as well as I do, reading plans and building what the plans say are two totally different things. And God's called these guys not just to have the plans, Not just to teach what God has said, but to put those plans into work. Uh, And so God called him by name before birth. Verse 2. I have called by name Bezalel. Now can you imagine being Bezalel 
when Moses comes down off the mountain and goes, hey, while I was up there for 40 days, while I was in the glory and the presence of God, God mentioned your name specifically. How cool would that be? You know, it's, it's not just, hey, he said he called somebody to build stuff. No, he mentioned your name, Bezalel, Aholiab. God said your name. Do you know that in Ephesians 1, it actually says that before the foundation of the earth, God chose you and I for salvation? And he didn't just say, hey, I want to save people. He knows each one of us by name. He has said your name in the presence of the Father, Jesus has. And I love this because God knows each one of us personally, not just relationally. He's not, he's not just looking at a group of people saying, I love the whole world. No doubt, he has said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He said that. But you might say, God so love, and then insert your name. Because God does know your name. And so... It's, it's a very personal thing to be called by God to serve him in any capacity. Uh, he says, I've called you by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. He didn't call him when he was born. He called him before he was born. God foreknew who would respond. And so verse 3, he says, I've filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom, understanding, knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works there was going to be some sort of a creative liberty in building these implements uh, he's going to be able to make them personally it's going to have his fingerprints all over it to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones and jewels and carving wood and this guy's pretty talented he's pretty gifted He's, he's got the ability to make things with his hands. And he didn't have Pinterest or DIY YouTube videos or Google. You know, like he was receiving the instructions from God, able to take the blueprints and build things out of the specified materials. If I'm going to make a bunk bed and I look up a YouTube video, many times I do exactly what they say. But sometimes I'm like, I'm not buying pine, I'm getting two by fours. You know, I'm not buying the specific lumber. Uh, every piece of furniture that I've made in our house is made of two-by-fours, by the way. That's just how I roll. It's what's already in the garage. I'm not making a special trip. Now, my wife probably is not very happy with that. But that's what I do. These guys made it according to the exact plan. So their ministry, his ministry, is to make these works out of the specific materials. And then verse 6 says... I indeed have appointed with him a holy app. So he's multiple, multiple, mentioned multiple people here by name for these specific works. But I want to turn real quick to Ephesians in chapter 1. Because what does this look like for us in Christ? Ephesians 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's given us everything that pertains to what we need to fulfill the ministry he's called us to. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption, he's made us sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And so I'm going to go to chapter 2 in Ephesians as well and point out some things that Paul writes to the Ephesian church that we need to know. He says, and you, you might insert your name there, he made alive who were dead, past tense, in trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't like limping around and you weren't kind of making it. God says that if we're in our trespasses and sins, we're dead. But if we are in Christ, he's made us alive who were once dead. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Past tense, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, where, and were by nature children that would receive wrath just as the others. But here's my favorite phrase in the Bible, verse 4. But God... That's a, that's a good thing. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So just as Christ has raised from the dead, being destroyed by the power of sin and put to death by evil men, we also, though we were dead in our sin, God has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. That's not just being alive, folks. That's resurrection, eternal life. Jesus right now is living to intercede for you and I. He sits at the right hand of God. God didn't die. He's alive. He's still working. He says, by grace you've been saved. So this is where most of the Christian church stops and focuses their whole lives on. We've been saved. But do we do anything with our salvation? The children of Israel had been saved from bondage and slavery and Pharaoh telling them to throw their babies into the river. Is that where it stops? God saved them just to say he saved them? Well, yes and no. Because it goes on to say in verse 8 of Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. It took faith. It's not just something that you get to just receive without believing it. And yet, he said, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Just like the ability that these men have to serve God and to make these implements, the gift of God is their salvation. It's not something that they can work for or earn, which I'm pretty thankful for because I don't work hard enough to earn my salvation. But he says, lest anyone would boast about it. If we could earn it, We'd walk around with our chest puffed up and go, look at what I did. But instead, he says, we are God's workmanship. So just like these implements in the temple would be workmanship of these men, we are his workmanship. He's an artisan. The word there in the Greek is a poema, 
if you're really into written prose and poetry, uh, you're God's poem. You're his artistry. Created in Christ Jesus, look at this, for good works. Not from good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So Bezalel, Aholiab, are walking around on the earth. They don't know what they're created for. But a word comes down from the mountain, and, and Moses says, Hey, you two, you're called to this labor. You're called to serve God in this way. You're called to give glory to God by what you make with your hands. And I don't know about you, but for the longest time, I separated the practical from the spiritual as being things that I can serve God in. But let me set you free this morning. Everything that God gives you to do with your hands, with your body, with the air in your lungs, uh, how you serve your family, you name it. It's all something that we have been given the calling to glorify God and how we do it more than what we do. God says, I want to use you. And the way I'm going to use you may not be what you originally thought. And so in verse 6, he goes on. He says, I've appointed Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, and I've put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. Now, I want to point out that Aholiab was called not to be out in the forefront, but to assist. Now, some of you know way more about sports than I do. But you've already noticed that John Stockman, Stockman, right? I probably messed that up first service. What is it? Stockton. Stockton. I have to think of the lake in southwest Missouri. Stockton Lake. All right. John Stockton. See, I told you, you guys know more than I do. But something I do know is that when he was playing basketball, I would watch with my brother and be waiting until we could turn on something way better. But John Stockton is not known for the most points scored, is he? You guys know he's known for assisting. Do you know how many career assists that he had? I won't get this wrong. 15,806. Do you know the next runner-up to John Stockton was 3,000 less? So think of how many points would not have been scored had John Stockton said, nope, I want to try to shoot myself. Not shoot myself, but I want to try to shoot for my own benefit. I want to score the points. Sorry, this... Sometimes I say stuff and I can't help but repeat it and go, I can't believe I just said that. Oh, no, I'm talking out loud. So John Stockton is known for supplying the ball to someone who could score more often than him. Not the tallest guy, not the best shooter. No doubt, probably had plenty of points. But my point is, is that he was well known and his gift to his team because it's about the team score, not the individual score, was to get the ball to somebody who could score. And I don't know about you, but I watched some second-grade basketball yesterday. Most of those kids just run up and try to shoot. It's not actually common to see them go, hey, you're a better shooter than I am. Here you go. Now, it's more common if it's girls' basketball because they're not like dudes that just want to get the glory. They're just like, I... I I don't want to shoot it. I don't feel like I'm going to make it. Here, you, you make it. You know, girls are a little more like that. But my point is, is that Aholiab's name means father's tent, and somehow in the, the Hebrew it implies place of light. 
So what's interesting is that in the life of Bezalel, who had a calling specifically, and in the life of Aholiab, who had a calling specifically, they were equally gifted by God. Recognize that. They, were, they both had the talents to make all of the stuff in the tabernacle and work with the different materials, but only one of them was called to lead. And one of them was called to assist. Which, the one that was called to assist, by the way, actually is a better type of Jesus. Because if you turn to John chapter 6, in verse 38, Jesus, who had more assists than John Stockton, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but instead the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So the son had a role, just like Aholiab, who's a type of the son. And so I wonder if Aholiab knew that his life was a type of Jesus Christ. It probably would have gave even more meaning to what he was doing. But he knew that his peace mattered. So in verse 6 through 11, what we see is that there are not only artisans by name, but then there's a group of them that are listed. He says there in verse 6, about halfway through, I've put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans. So he's talking about more than just the guys that we listed and talked about. He says, I've, I've put wisdom in their hearts that they may make all that I have commanded you, Moses. So interestingly enough, these men are called to make things that they don't even know about yet, but Moses has been told to make them, and yet he's not supposed to make them. Does that make sense? It didn't to me. Because Moses has a role, and so because he has a role, he all, he, while he has things that he's called to do, he also has things that he's called not to do. How many of you think that you have to be everything in every person's life that's in your life? Not only do you have to be their friend, but you've got to be their counselor, and you've got to be their support system, and you've got to be their encourager. And you got to be there, and you can list on and on and on. And I want to s- submit to you that if you feel like you need to be every role in every person's life that you are connected with, then you're, you feel called to be their Jesus. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're not called to be Jesus. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, everlasting Father, you know, mighty God, everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. You're not. <laughs> and you know that. You already know that. But sometimes you feel like you need to fill that role because they don't have any peace and you want to help them. Point them to the one who can help them. But here we have Moses' role is to receive from God, to teach what God has shown him, and to lead. But it's not his calling to build. It's Bezalel, it's Aholiab, it's all these other artisans that are gifted to do it. But at the same time, what he does or does not do affects if they can do their ministry. Did you know that in many ways, your life is a conduit through who God is going to reach others, and yet you're not called to be their Jesus, you're called to be the one that encourages them to walk with Jesus. 
do that and you'll fulfill your calling. Now, Exodus, what I'm finding is as I'm studying through it, it's not about individuals, it's about the whole group. Each one of them submitted to God, filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we have uh, Moses, who many people think that Exodus is about Moses. And no doubt, he plays a key role. He delivers the people. He also uh, spends time with the Father. He, he teaches. He leads them across the Red Sea. And yet it's not just about him, because his ministry isn't everything that's made everything possible to this point. It also includes Aaron. If Aaron doesn't be the voice box for Moses, then the Pharaoh doesn't hear a word. I, I don't know about you guys, but when I read Exodus many times, I've thought while I'm reading it, this is what Moses is saying to Pharaoh. But Moses didn't say a word to Pharaoh. Aaron did. Because Moses said, I can't speak, I've got a speech impediment. And so God gave him Aaron to speak. He's the voice piece. The priests... Now, no doubt, this tabernacle needs priests in order to serve inside of it. And yet, it's not about the priests. It's not just about the priest. It's not just about Jethro. How many of you guys remember Jethro? And I'm not talking about the guy that gets in the wagon and comes from California, or to California that finds the oil. I'm talking about uh, Moses' father-in-law. Moses' father-in-law. Are you a, any, any of you in here today a father-in-law or at one point expect to be one? How you treat your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law matters. Jethro, while Moses is being called away from his family for a time to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, Jethro keeps the kids and the wife. He keeps his daughter and his kids for a time so that the Israelites can be delivered. He didn't have to do that, but he did, and his role mattered. Miriam, what about Miriam? Miriam was the one that led them in worship when they crossed the Red Sea. She starts getting out her tambourine and going for it, and she leads the whole nation in worship. Thank you, Lord, for delivering us from the chariot and the Egyptians and, and, and their riders. Um, I forgot one thing. Jethro also spoke into Moses' life when he started leading the Israelites when they got into, uh, when they crossed the Red Sea. He was sitting day and night listening to the people's problems. And what did Jethro do? He looked at, the, at Moses and said, what you're doing is not good, which most father-in-laws have a tendency to say that to their son-in-law and daughter-in-law, right? What you're doing is not good. But he didn't stop there. Don't stop there. He said, what you're doing is not good. Perhaps you need more help counseling the people of Israel. There was over a million at this point. That was a, a, a large understatement. Uh, they definitely needed more help. And so because of that, Moses raised up other leaders. He divided the people into tens and the hundreds and thousands. And he put able men in charge of them to speak over them. And if there was something too difficult for them to take care of, then Moses would answer their question. A division of labor. So what I'm talking about here is that the overall theme of this is that it's not, just like the church is not all about one person. If you've ever been to a church and you've been ministered to, you've probably given the credit to an individual, right? That this person spoke to me or this person did this. But the reality is, is that whoever gets ministered to in a church, it's not just about the pastor or the worship leader or the individual they talk to. It's about the whole body. Because 
most of what I do can't get done unless there's somebody in a booth back there or there's somebody making sure that the coffee's made or making sure that the front porch is blown off or making sure that, you know, that the lights come on at the right times or, or that the bathrooms are clean. All of those little pieces that seem insignificant, while they don't have to be there, we don't have to have air conditioning, we don't have to have lights on, and yet you and I both know that all of those little practical things that provide the place and the space for worship to take place is what leads to the spiritual transformation. Each one of us play a role, and some of them are look to be more glamorous than others. And, and you might say, that's easy for you to say, you get to be in the spotlight. Well, frankly, there's a lot of times where I'd prefer not to be in the spotlight. Now, I also can't walk around this church without noticing things that need fixed because I care very much about what it looks like because I want it to be a blessing and useful to each one of you. And there are many other things that go into it. But my point is, is that every single role is important. And whatever God has called you to do, it's, it's just as important as the thing that you think is more important than that, if that makes sense. And, and I was going to use the analogy of uh, driving to St. Louis. Many of us drive to St. Louis or maybe to Farmington regularly to go do things that we need to do. But who would you give the credit to for a safe trip to St. Louis or Farmington? Probably yourself for driving or having the directions. Or, but then you've got to stop and think about it. If, if you don't have a car that was manufactured properly or designed properly, it doesn't make it there. And if you don't have a road that was designed and built and maintained and taken care of, then you don't get to get there. And if you don't have somebody regularly changing your oil or checking your tire pressure or whatever it might be, then you can't do that one thing that you were trying to do. Um, and if you don't have people, you know, making sure that people are obeying the speed limit, then you might not get there safe. All of those things matter. And so, all that said, uh, all these gifted artisans are... are orchestrated together by one individual that's Jesus he's the head of the church and we are the body and I have there for you a picture of the candelabra or the the lampstand and the reality is is that they would fill the bottom of that lampstand it was a reservoir for whole for oil and that oil flowed up through on the wicks so the wicks matter the oil matters the candle uh, the or the excuse me the lampstand matters but each one of those branches individually is supplied the oil from the base, right? But when they all come up to the top, what happens is that there is light on the lamp. And as you walk into the tabernacle, you can see all of the labor that's going on in the tabernacle because each one of those is supplying light from a different vantage point. And what I want to say is that each one of you and I, we supply the light because we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we glorify God in a manifest amount of ways. God's work is a team effort. His light shines through each one of us. Everyone's given their role in gifting by the Lord. He supplies that. He calls us to our role of service, and then he equips us to what we've been called to do. But then, I want to take you to 1 Peter, because this is also true in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 10, 
It says, as each one of us has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as though God is speaking through him. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. God deserves the glory that comes from our lives, just like that light that comes from the lampstand. So, while we are called to serve, of course, I think I skipped over reading some of this. He says in verse 6, I put wisdom in the heart of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it. All the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils. That, that was where the bread sat. The pure gold lampstand with its utensils. The altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering with all its utensils. And the laver in its base. The garments of ministry. The holy garments for Aaron the priest. The garments of his sons to minister as priests. And the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So they're called to serve, they're called to labor, and each one is called to labor in the way that God's called them. But have you ever considered that it's also a calling upon each one of our lives while we are to labor and use our gifts for God, we're also called to rest. So in verse 12, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So this resting, this Sabbath rest that God's appointed for them is something that God has given them as a sign that he is their God. Now, some of you have thought about this and maybe you haven't, but do you remember in Genesis where Noah was a part of building the ark, and then he was risen up again, uh, above the floods of judgment that the rest of the world was killed by. And God told Noah, after the flood, after the waters receded, he said, I'm never again going to flood the earth in water. And here's the sign that will remind you that I've made this promise. I'm going to hang my war bow in the clouds... And so to this day, we see that bow. We think of it as this, you know, rainbow. You find lucky charms at the end or gold or whatever. Or it's even been twisted to mean pride. But the, the rainbow itself is meant to signify that God promised he would never again flood the earth with water. Now, he will judge the earth again by fire. But that being said, he made a covenant with Noah. He said, I will, no, I will never again flood the earth in water. And here's how you'll know. Every time it rains and the sun's out, you're going to see my bow hanging in the clouds. That's left there as a sign. But then there's the Abrahamic covenant. What was the outward sign of the Abrahamic covenant? God made a covenant with, God, with Abraham in Genesis 12. And then he reiterates it in 15. But the outward sign of that covenant was every Sunday school teacher's dream. 
circumcision. Everybody likes to talk about circumcision. I'm, of course, speaking in jest, but the reality is that that was an outward sign that they were to continue using that no one else would see except for them individually, right? Hopefully. But that sign was there to be reminding them, I'm the Lord's. Just like the priest wearing these holy garments, no one else would see those garments, but as they would put them on out of obedience, the holy underwear, they would know that they were set apart for God's use and they were doing it God's way. In the same way, we have uh, the outward sign of the Mosaic Covenant was to display to themselves and to the world, we're not our own, we're God's. And that outward sign was the Sabbath day of rest. Now, he will go on later to say, it's not just once every seven days, but then it's also one year out of every seven years. And then he will go further, and one year out of every 50 years would be the year of Jubilee. And during that Sabbath year, if they had sold properties or owed money, it was all forgiven. How many of us would love that? I'm going to forgive all of your debts, and I'm going to set things straight, and you get to start from point one again. But here's the reality. Even though they were told to rest every year, they never took advantage of that. Even though they were, t- they were told, well, I want you to take a- work six days and stop on the Sabbath, seventh, the Sabbath, they never did it. Now, it was an outward sign between God and the children of Israel. We are not required to Sabbath, but we do get to if we'll take advantage of it. But this sign of the Sabbath was an act of faith that set them apart as God's people, the true children of Israel. It's an act of faith, isn't it, to work only six days and take a day off. I I can be the worst at it. Here I am. It's Sunday, and that's one of my big days. But does that mean that I don't need to take a day of rest to get refreshed? No. But does that mean that I, I can't or that I don't or that I won't? It's an act of faith because I could be very tempted to think just because I keep working every day, that's what holds it all together. But when we take one day off a week to cease from our labor, we're, in a sen- we're essentially saying, I don't keep the world together. Some of you need to know that. You are not holding your family together. You are not keeping your workplace together. You are not the one that's keeping the world spinning. If you stop for a day, guess what? You have an opportunity. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And I would take it a step further, and I would say this. You need to be still in order to know that He is God. You need to be still. You need to take time to cease in order to know that God is God and you are not. It actually glorifies God when we cease from our labor. And one of the ways that it does that is that in the meta narrative of the Bible, the big picture, what does God do when he creates? Remember, the tabernacle is an image. The tabernacle is taking... When, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created a place and a space for us to interact with him, right? That was the garden the, in the very beginning. But then if you go to the tabernacle, there's all these like flowers and almond blossoms, and there's the cherubim, which were also in the garden. 
There's all these pictures that remind us of the garden that was in the very beginning of the Bible that God created where he and man interacted. But when he created the heavens and the earth, day one through six, it says that on the seventh day he stopped working. Now, do you think he stopped working because he was tired? I'll answer that for you. No, he wasn't worn out. Uh, the psalmists write that, G, uh, that God never sleeps or slumbers. He doesn't need a nappy. He doesn't need to get some extra shut-eye or beauty rest. But on the sixth day, he finished his work, and on the seventh, he on purpose set the example. He set the pattern. On six days you'll labor, and on the seventh day you'll rest. And there in Genesis, in chapter 2, it says this. If I can get there. My fingers aren't working. I'd be terrible at Bible drill. Genesis chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it, set it apart, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And so in Exodus chapter 31, verse 1 through 17, we see that the way that we work reflects the character of God. The way that you labor reflects the character of the God that you're laboring for. But then at the same time, the way that you labor and then rest also reflects the character of God. It reveals to the world who he is. God's not just somebody that's a harsh taskmaster. They just left Egypt where the Pharaoh never gave them breaks. And every time they asked for a break, he said, you just don't want to work anymore. Work harder. And then he gave them more to do. Well, God's not like that. He gives us work to do, but then he also says, he's not just commanding, he's also telling us, it'll be good for you if you get some rest. And you know that if you've ever tried to work seven days and seven days and seven days. You might feel really accomplished for a while until you're absolutely exhausted to the point of getting sick. And sometimes we get sick, and I believe a lot of us get sick because we never stop. Maybe that's wrong, but I, I think that's a piece of it. Now, how you do what you do will either glorify God or it will glorify your efforts. Turn with me to Colossians in chapter 3. And I'm going to read there verse uh, 23. Paul writes to the Colossians and says, Whatever you do, do it heartily. In other words, with every part of your being. But do it as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of your inheritance. Let me tell you, if you are working every week, every day, every, everything that you do is in order to get that paycheck, it's never going to be fulfilling. You're always going to want more. But he says here, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward for your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. If you'll go to work instead of working for the money or the guy that's in charge of you or the glory that comes from it, if you'll just work for God... The reality is you'll find a lot more fulfillment in what he's gifted you to do. 
He says, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, I find that interesting because maybe you're thinking, I don't struggle with that at work. Maybe you're thinking, I don't struggle with that in my day-to-day life, but I do struggle with that in relationships. Well, in the context of this passage, he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. But right before that, he gives us particularly applicable examples. He says, wives. Verse 19, he says, husbands. Verse 20, he says, children. Verse 21, he says, fathers. Verse 22, he says, bondservants. All of these are roles that you and I, each one of us, we're covered in this list, right? He says, wives, if you want to do whatever you do to to the Lord and not to men, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting for the Lord. Verse 19, he says, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. In everything you do, glorify God. This is how you can do it. Verse 20, he says, children, obey your parents in all things. This pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So not provoking your children is actually a way to serve God. Verse 22, and I would equate bond servants to whatever, whatever it is you do for a living. He says, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. In other words, the boss. Not just when he's looking, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Serve your boss as you fear God. You serve him in a better way than you would if you fear him. He can only be there sometimes to watch what you're doing. And so in whatever you do, glorify God. So as we close on this chapter, he says in verse 18, back in the context of these verses, we've talked about laboring with the gifts of God, anointed by the Spirit of God, for the glory of God. Uh, We've talked about resting in God's finished work, that we don't actually hold it all together, that He does. I really want to set you guys free. I really want to encourage you, find a time to rest in Jesus. Find a time to, to, to trust that what God has accomplished on your behalf is enough to please God. Just one day a week. It will change your life. It will change your family. It will change your work and your ethic at work. It will change your morale in ways that we just can't even quantify. But then he says at the end of this chapter, he says, when God had made an end of speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave two tablets of the testimony to him, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So, Uh, As he's speaking to Moses for 40 days on Mount Sinai, as he's coming down off the mountain, I don't know if this is the case or not, but it seems like God's looking at Moses saying, hey, I noticed you didn't take any notes, so let me send you home with some notes. I made notes for you. He's he's he's, He's sending him down the hill with all these instructions and these blueprints and these commands, but then he's also sending him down with the top ten. I want you to have these as a monument, as a a memorial. I want you to, these things are important. Now, what we know is that next week as we get into Exodus 32, as he comes down off the mountain, they've already broken most of the commandments all in one fell swoop. But I want to remind you as we get ready to get into that passage 
The reality is, is that salvation and redemption are messy. God has commanded us things. God has given us instruction in righteousness. He's given us everything that we need in Christ Jesus, but he's also given us his grace. On the day that they come down off the mountain, there are all kinds of ungodly, evil things going on, and 3,000 die on that day. They're judged for their sin. But what I love is that in the New Testament, the New Covenant, Jesus took the punishment. He took the brutality that we deserved for our sin. And now we get grace for grace. So as you think about how God has called you you physically out of the world, and he's instructed you, he's shown you the way to live through Jesus. And then he's, he's calling you practically, daily, spiritually out of the world you're going to mess up. And in those moments, I would encourage you, fall back on the grace of God. Picture it like a trampoline. If you've sinned and you've taken yourself down low because you've been in sin, I want you to jump on the trampoline of God's grace. Fall headlong into his mercy. James says, those who will humble themselves, God lifts them up. Confess your sin, let God deal with it, and let him bring you back up to where you're supposed to be. God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 7 as we close. Matthew chapter 7. It says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but... He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Done many wondrous things in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these things that I've said and does them, I will liken that person to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when adversity, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on that house And it fell, and great was its fall. So, Father, we come to you this morning as those who are being instructed by you. You've shown us the way to live in Christ Jesus. You've given gifts to each one of us to serve you. And we can choose to do two things. We can take those gifts and use them for ourselves selfishly, or we can serve you in every area of our lives wholeheartedly. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to see the ways that we're gifted, to submit those gifts to you, to ask you how you want to use them, and be those who not only hear your word, but do it. Father, we want to glorify you in the way that we labor. Until you give us the ability to retire and move on or whatever it is, we're called to serve you with our hands. And even in the Christian life, there's really no such thing as retirement. We all still have something that we are called to do by your grace and by your gifting. 
So, Father, help us to do everything you give us to do wholeheartedly as unto you, but help us not to neglect to take the time to rest, to stop laboring so that we can glorify you in that way. Father, we need you for these things. We need your word to instruct us. We need you to lead us. Help us not to be conformed into the image of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will prove what is the perfect and acceptable and holy will of God. Lord, use us, and may you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.